Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transform TV podcast series. Today, we're going to be having a fantastic conversation with Tessa Lee, who is the Senior Corporate Engagement Manager in the Climate Group's New York offices. Uh, Tessa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for being here. Uh, what, before we get going, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and tell us a little bit about the Climate Group? Sure. Thank you, Maria. And I'm excited to be here today. Um, so I've been with the Climate Group for about a year now, but I've been working in the climate and nonprofit space for about 15 years with previous roles at uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Rocky Mountain Institute, the Carbon War Room. Um, so it may have crossed paths with some of your members and, and listeners in the past as well. As you said, I'm based in New York City, where the Climate Group has a small North America office. We also have some staff in Latin America and China an office in New Delhi, and overall our headquarters are over with you in London. Um, the Climate Group generally was founded back in 2003, and I think we might be best known for putting on Climate Week every year mm -hmm. here in NYC. Uh, every fall that occurs along the UN General Assembly. Last year, we did a pivot to the first ever virtual Climate Week, and, and it was really amazing. And we're, we're looking forward to something even bigger this year with a mix of virtual and in-person events. So invite everybody to check out Climate Week NYC online. Um, more generally at the Climate Group, our mission is to drive climate action fast. And today we do that by building networks of leading actors who are committed to specific and ambitious climate targets. And then we leverage their commitments as a demand signal to drive wider change and accelerate the transition to a low carbon economy that ultimately we're all looking for. Um, so we have our three corporate pledge campaigns around renewable electricity, energy productivity, and electric vehicles, which we'll talk about today. And we're also the secretariat for the Under Two Coalition, which is a network mm -hmm. of state and regional governments who are also making ambitious climate pledges. Let's talk about this past year, which has been difficult for everyone, uh, not to say the least, uh, you know, uh, with regards to COVID, but Suez Canal disruptions, uh, issues with climate, you know, loads of issues. I mean, we've had disruption for a while, but I think let's talk about this last year. Do you find that it's hard for leaders, be it in supply chain or any anywhere else, but for us, it's applicable for supply chain, to manage the desire to pursue an agenda for climate and sustainability and so forth whilst dealing with the present day distractions and disruption? Yeah. Um, now, I must admit, I have the privilege with working with companies who are maybe at the leading edge of climate ambition, who've already built sustainability in their DNA. Um, but I don't think that that's the overall reason that my answer is actually no because um, we're working with very diverse companies from, from around the world and diverse sectors. And we did a survey last fall about six months into the pandemic about the impact of COVID on our members' climate and sustainability ambitions and their efforts. And I think even we were surprised when basically unanimously our respondents said that you know, sustainability was just as or even more important to their businesses uh, than before COVID. And I think if anything, COVID is actually a, a tragic preview of the sort of systemic disruptions that we'll face from unmitigated climate change. And I think in a way it's reinforced the urgency of investing in the sort of resilience building and risk mitigation measures that these, some of these decarbonization uh, pathways really offer. Um, certainly I'm sure not, not every company has, has had 
the ability to see it that way, but within our membership, um, no, if anything, folks have sped up. They've seen this as an opportunity. Uh, we talk now about building back better. Um, and yeah, I think it, it brought home the risk in a way to, to, to any uh, pockets that, that hadn't quite realized it yet. And, and we really see this as an opportunity for transformative change. Well, I was just gonna ask you the next question, which was about how, how many companies or how do you really think that companies are starting to really take this seriously uh, in terms of the, uh, the urgency? Yeah, yeah, yes. It feels like a tipping point. As I said, I've, I've been in the space uh, for a long time. Some of the conversations and the questions that I used to get 10 years ago around, you know, is how real is the risk of climate change? You know, mm. I never get those anymore. I never have to make just the case of needing to do something anymore. And, and I used to have to have those conversations just within my career. Um, so I think the risk is clear. It's undeniable. It's no longer up for debate. And also the opportunity, um, the economic growth opportunity presented by these new industries that are popping up by these cost savings technologies that we can now invest in, um, I think is clear. Um, so at the climate group across our three corporate campaigns, the EP100, RE100 and EV100, uh, we have about 425 members at present, uh, diverse sectors around the globe, so over 300 now in RE100, we were excited to pass the 300 mark a few weeks ago and a little over hundred in both EP and EV. Mm -hmm. those, don't, those add up to less than 500 because many of our companies are members of, of both or of two or all three right. of the campaigns because they're, those, those companies are recognizing the holistic nature of their carbon strategies, how investments in low carbon electricity generation are supported by increases in energy efficiency and productivity, mm -hmm. how they facilitate the adoption of electric vehicles. And so folks are starting to see the pieces come together. And, and it's also they're driven not just by sort of governmental initiatives. I mean, some the consumers are demanding this, aren't they? Sure, absolutely. When we talk to our companies about their motivations for joining, uh, by and large, it is around uh, their reputations and around the validation and credibility that, you know, uh, partnering with a climate NGO gives their mm -hmm. sustainability efforts because they are very aware um, of that need. Uh, but another thing that I've seen change over the course of my career, it's no longer a CSR conversation. It's no longer a marketing or PR conversation. These are core operational functions. This is procurement. This is facilities management. Um, these are big investments that, that the companies are pursuing. Um, and, and that's another thing that, that I, I think is, is part of that um, inertia that momentum if you will I, I you know something that you said just struck home with me about how 10 years ago you were having to justify the conversation uh around sustainability you're no longer having those conversations that's a good measure really yeah. of how how far things have come in the last 10 years in terms of our perception right certainly i mean it's anecdotal but i i'm having yeah, of course but it's, but it's true and, and it's, but it's yeah, true I, I can notice that for sure yeah well th that's that's hopeful um, and, and so um, if we talk a little bit about, say, again, going back to this COVID thing, um, how has the impact of people working from home, you know, and uh, ha what has the impact been for organizations? Before you answer that, let me let me tell you my anecdotal. Um, when I talk to people, generally, I ask them and I have a vested interest because I used to be an events organizer. Are you going to be traveling more to events? Are you going to go back to events? And pretty much everybody says, um, you know, travel is going to be only for essential things now. 
You know, a lot of non-essential travel is going to end. Um, and, and that's just one of the elements that you guys deal with. Have you found anything similar? It's it's come up a bit for us and, and the, the structure and the, the, the focus areas of our three campaigns. Um, I think the biggest uncertainty would be around electricity consumption in office spaces and, and if mm. there'll be a shift there. Some of our members are starting to look at, you know, accounting for things like electricity consumption in the homes, uh, commuter fuel. Those are sort of outside the scope of our targets, but I'm excited. I'm, I'm hearing that from, from members is what they're starting to talk about. We haven't seen yet our annual reporting. Our last report came out in 2020, looking at data through 2019. And so we'll, we'll have more information um, later this year with, with our next annual report around where sort of electricity consumption levels have, have, have really changed. Um, so I'm not quite, I, I, TBD still, the data is still coming in. Um, I know it's been a conversation, but I haven't seen it uh, reduce the commitments. And if anything, uh, some of those changes may contribute to, again, anecdotally, but may contribute to maybe one contributing factor to expanding the vision and looking beyond the, the scope one and scope two sort of oper owned and operated um, resources that our hundreds campaigns cover and looking along supply chains and looking at scope three. Talk to us about the focus uh, at the moment for some of the different initiatives that you've got, uh, that you run. Why did you choose some of these areas um, uh, to focus on in terms of the fight against uh, climate change? Sure. I mean, I'd say a pretty objective assessment of cost curves and scalability and, and technology readiness and emission reduction potentials. Um, the easiest technology, which can cut emissions in, in any industry, in any geography for the lowest cost is the switch to renewable electricity. And so we launched mm -hmm. with RE100 in 2014. Um, from there, energy productivity for, for manufacturing processes, energy efficiency in the built environment. The technologies are, are more diverse. Some of the details of adoption are more industry or geographically specific. Uh, but again, the business place is clear and longstanding. The risks are fairly low and well understood for making these investments. Um, and likewise, electric vehicles, we have the technology, Mm -hmm. It's proven, and we really see in that sector of late kind of the aggregate demand signal coming up to a tipping point. We're looking at some other areas. We've got some very nascent work at food, in food and land use. We recently launched a Steel Zero program that I'm really excited about. We have an established program focused just on LED lighting. Um, but these three, it's, it's really a cost curve question, a technology maturity question, a sort of applicability and scalability, and, and that's why we're focused. And you also launched recently, didn't you, the uh, um, uh, supply chain, sustainable supply chain efforts, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So so as I said, we launched uh, RE100 in 2014. And back then it was bold. It was wild. Companies said to us, you know, this is too uncertain. We don't think we can commit to this yet. And our early joiners, all Swiss Re, H&M, Mars, Ikea, BT, Nestle, Signify, and a few others, they were really putting themselves out there. And we were really proud to see them take that first step. Um, and now just six years later, uh, many of our members have achieved or have within sight credible 100% or very, very nearly 100%. There's some tricky little geographies, islands, nations, et cetera, um, for their own operations, which is what the RE100 commitment covers. And so while we're far with being done from RE100, because we've still got an entire electrical grid to transition globally, for our members who are the leaders, they've started telling us sort of, Okay, RE100, that's, that's so last year. What's next? 
Um, and so we're seeing them, we're seeing them set net zero targets. We're seeing them set more ambitious science-based targets and upping their ambitions, which I love. And they're really starting to look at the full climate impact of their products, which of course includes their supply chains. Um, and so whether obviously with manufacturing and selling physical products, but even if you're looking at embodied carbon of buildings and the emissions of data centers in the cloud, almost any company has most of their footprint in their supply mm -hmm. chain and scope three emissions. Um, and so we've just launched some new work together with BSR and the Exponential Roadmaps 1.5 Supply Chain Leaders Group. Okay. Uh, and so that's really exciting and, and that's new. And we're looking at, we're, we're now scoping how we, how we take that forward and exactly what our role is. There's a lot of existing sustainability initiatives on specific commodities and specific geographies that we'll be looking to, to work with and complement. Um, but I also want to mention that our existing hundreds initiatives, while every commitment is for your own operations, we're already working along supply chains. So for RE100, we've got Intel and Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, as well as Apple and Dell and Logitech who are using their components. We've got Johnson & Johnson and Unilever and Procter & Gamble, as well as some of their retailers like Walmart and Target and Tesco. Um, we've got software companies, as well as data and cloud centers. And so already those supply chain pieces, your scope three is someone else's scope one or scope two. Yeah. And yeah. so that anyone can join RE100, we're sort of agnostic as to where um, anyone within the criteria, but we're agnostic as to an industry or sort of what node along the supply chain. They're not all end product consumer facing companies who are members. Um, so, so we've already got supply chains and, within the membership. And what's the criteria? I mean, do companies have to be a certain size to join your network? And, uh, and if they did want to join your network, how, what, what, how does the conversation tend to go? How does it look? Yeah, so the only uh, of the three campaigns, the only one with kind of a quantitative cutoff of a minimum is RE100, uh, mm -hmm. where we request 100,000 megawatt hours annually that they'd be committing. And that has to be, they have to commit the total of their scope one, scope two electricity commitment uh, consumption. Um, that's because we can only meaningfully engage with so many companies. We don't do a lot of handholding. Uh, so we're the right initiative for larger and more sophisticated companies because we're really trying to show the sheer size of the demand. So fewer bigger companies add up faster. Um, but we think that the success of those bigger companies opens the door for everyone. For EP100 and EV100, there isn't a specific number criteria. Okay. Uh, but again, that question of capacity and sophistication, a company has to have the staff or consultants to do the work of how to get there on their own. We don't provide that sort of consulting. Uh, we monitor and validate and amplify their successes to, yeah. to drive wider change. And um, with, with regards to, uh, I guess, the companies that you're working with, can you shed some light on companies that are really paving the way that are really doing a good job with with with, with reaching their targets and, and what they've done to achieve that sure um out of 425 it's so hard to, to pick any favorites yeah um, yeah we, i uh, in january i was really excited from the u.s office um to find 38 companies who are 100 percent for the united states consumption from the reporting mm -hmm. through 2019 um I, we've got around 30 odd companies who are at 100% for renewables globally. Um, with electric vehicles, we've been really excited to see as a result of our advocacy, some OEMs, some national governments like the UK set mm -hmm. rather ambitious target dates for the phase out of combustion engines. Um, so, so yeah, we're, we're seeing exciting successes all over the place. 
um, with our with our companies and with the results of their efforts. Uh, because I think what's important to note here is is we're a nonprofit, we're a mission driven nonprofit, and so while we love kind of giving out green stars and, and validating the efforts of our leaders. Our goal is really to create transparent and aggregated demand signals and to drive wider change. And so our members set their target dates uh, and using that we can provide certainty and we can provide pressure to policymakers, to investors, et cetera. Um, sort of that if you build it, they will buy it. It almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Um, no government wants to be the reason that a big cohort of major companies starts looking elsewhere. Um, yeah. and, and so it's, it's a bigger conversation um, than just the successes of our individual members. It's what those can then um, potentiate and actualize and, and add up to. And okay, if we go a little bit more practical to say the supply chain executives that are listening, that are, that are watching this, uh, today, some of them will be overwhelmed with the prospect of trying to go to some sort of net zero target or, or maybe even meet some of the criteria. What advice would you have or perhaps maybe that other companies have done to uh, to help launch these initiatives or run these initiatives within their businesses? Sure. I mean, I do think starting with uh, setting targets uh, for yourself, almost walking the walk. And so a supply chain executive looking across their company, looking at their CSO and their procurement, you know, what targets are they setting for themselves and starting there? Um, and, and that will help facilitate those, those uh, supplier conversations and supplier targets. Um, setting targets for, again, for any company gives you that long-term planning horizon. It really allows you, you know, it gives you those guarantees. It allows you to make bolder policy asks, et cetera. And then when you turn the conversation to along the supply chain, uh, there are a lot of barriers, um, but we're starting to see, again, kind of a tipping point around, uh, we're sort of coalescing around what the barriers are and then mm -hmm. starting to see some uh, movement around what to do about them. So some of the major barriers, um, I think, irrespective of sector that I, that I hear is a lack of awareness of the economic opportunity or sort right. of the capacity to take advantage of decarbonization and adopt the, the new methods and sort of pursue it. Um, and, and so we're looking at and, and talking with, you know, whom can help and how can we collaborate to build that capacity. There's also a big related lack of transparency and data sharing. Um, but there's yeah. a number of initiatives that do exist that start to tackle this. Uh, I think we've still got a ways to go, but there's our, our partners at CDP have a supply chain program. Walmart, one of our members has Project Gigaton. There's some, some products on the market, EcoVartis, Supply Shift, Manufacture 2030 that start to try to unpick that data question. Mm -hmm. And finally, you have issues of leverage and alignment. And this varies a bit more depending on the industry. Um, in some cases, a supplier buyer relationship as, as uh, almost monopolistic to the point where if a buyer makes a, a request, there's only so many suppliers out there who can meet your needs, your quantity, your yeah. quality, what have you, you're sort of locked in. So make a request for renewable electricity, for example, if they don't buy it, if they don't meet it, you know, you can't do anything. In other industries, it's almost the reverse. Suppliers have lots of buyers, sort of short-term unpredictable contracts, not a lot of certainty. Again, a request coming from a buyer, even if a requirement, there's not a lot of leverage or there's not a lot of, of results um, to drive meeting those requests. So what we'd love to see um, is more alignment among the major suppliers, whether it's in an industry, whether it's a geography, again, starting to set some targets such that a supplier doesn't get 
different requests with different target dates and different percentages from yeah. a variety of buyers. That makes it hard. Um, so that we can collaborate on capacity building. There's no reason for five different buyers to provide right. slightly different training in local language to the same supplier. We're wasting our time, you know, we're duplicating efforts. And so where we can start to have more transparency and more collaboration, I think to see this not as a competitive issue, something to compete on, but really something a rising tide floats all boats here as, as we start to drive this change. And, and do you think that your members, feel, well, your members must feel the same way if they're involved with you guys, then they must see that this is something that is, you know, collaboration is better in this instance. Certainly, certainly. And we still work to have, you know, the conversation of increasing transparency, of sharing yeah, more data, of, of, of making folks comfortable with, with that and the implications there. Um, again, I'm, I'm from the activist nonprofit side, so I love, I love transparency and, 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 and seek the greater and sharing and yeah, sharing. Yeah. Seek the greater collective change um, and, and the benefits for all that can come from that. Uh, but again, I think the number one thing to start with today, walking the walk, um, walking the talk that is. So setting your own targets and starting to disclose um, your own emissions and your own uh, decarbonization efforts. And then uh, starting to build up your data and your monitoring capacity and, and starting to just get the information. And then you can start to figure out sort of where the best pathways for change will come from. So now you've got a platform, you've got, we've got our audience who are supply chain executives. What would you like to say to them? Uh, reach out, come and, come and work with us yeah. um, again. Yeah. And like I said, also reach out within your organization. I really think it has to start at home. Uh, change will begin at home. And so if you're uh, working at a company that is not pursuing renewable electricity procurement, energy efficiency audits and upgrades and, and retrofits, you know, electric vehicles where, where appropriate and charging station infrastructure um, to start there and to start having those conversations internally, because I think you'll have no leverage and limited capacity to uh, enforce those changes or to bring about those changes down along your supply chain if you're not able to, to do it at home first. And are you optimistic for the future? Well, we just we just had the, the climate action week here and, and I heard and, yes uh, and the yeah. Biden administration is backing you guys with this and they're they're doing stuff alongside. I mean are you more optimistic that they're uh, you know that they've they've got a real mission to drive real climate action? Yeah, so we were we were thrilled. The White House came and asked us to host us uh, the U.S. Climate Action Week in parallel with Biden's Climate Summit, and I'm in awe of my comms and events staff for pulling that together very That's quickly. Amazing. We had a, 115 events over the course of the week, and we saw wow. a lot of additional announcements made by city and state governments, by utilities, some new funding coalitions come together on deforestation, Glasgow Finance Alliance, a number of exciting new things. Um, I do feel. It, it's been an exile here in the U.S. since the inauguration for yeah. the climate space, just to have an administration that's uh, supportive, supportive rather than antagonistic, let's say. I mm -hmm. certainly get nervous still when I look globally at all the actors who still need to come around at even the Biden announcement that's not binding. So I'm very excited about the work done by city and state and, and subnational governments where those changes have to be enacted. Um, excited about the technologies that we're working on. We've got trickier questions of maritime bunker fuel and aviation fuel, mm. forestry and land use, landfills and waste. There's some other places where humanity's emission bubble, you know, still has, still needs some technology to develop, still needs kind of some alignment to happen. 
but yes, certainly more optimistic, say, than, than a few years ago. Well, on, on that note, Tessa, thank you so much for joining us. I would encourage our members to take a look at the climate de- the website that you have. It's theclimategroup.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, so check out the climate group, check out Climate Week, and no doubt reach out to Tessa to, you know, to get involved. Because like you said, this isn't just a financial thing. It's, it's something that is organizations are seeing how important this is to, to drive this, this strategy. So thank you so much, Tessa, for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And for those of you watching at home, we'll see you at the next one. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.